If you would take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, that will be our scripture reading this evening as we consider the 17th article of the Belgic Confession. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, may, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll turn also in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnals to page 861, we will read the 17th article together page 861. Article 17, what do you believe? We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and to make him blessed. Our introductory statement this morning is as follows. Despite the fact that man... Pause. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks uh, because apart from your blessing, we cannot understand the things of God. We are left darkened in our understanding and alienated from you. And so we depend even now upon your spirit to give us eyes to see and to teach us uh, as we receive with open hands and humble hearts uh, your word of truth. Bless it it to our hearts, both now and in this coming week. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, introduction. Despite the fact that man threw himself into total destruction and misery, God set in motion through the conquest of his son, 
a plan to recover man. And we'll consider that this morning in three points. The first is this, the beginning of recovery. The only reason man can be recovered is because of God. We see this, of course, very plainly in the, in the second chapter of Ephesians. God being rich in mercy, he says in verse 4, Paul, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, made us alive together with Christ. It is God who initiates. He does not owe us salvation, and yet he does so freely anyways. I find this interesting, of course. Um, God, God does not owe it to us. It is not necessary that he does so, and it seems to me that it's a particular wisdom of the Belgic Confession that it opens with this statement of God's goodness while, reco- while discussing the recovery of fallen man. Because the presupposition of God's goodness and graciousness and wisdom in saving mankind is that man has fallen. So you almost need to cover the fallenness of man first, but it starts with the graciousness of God. And I, I, I can't help but think that part of this is because God remains who he is, good, gracious, wise, free, even if he did not save. So in beginning this way, it's almost begging the question. It's just assuming the conclusion that we need saving, but there's a wisdom to this. But also the presupposition of the recovery, actually, is that of, of salvation is actually that God is indeed good, wise, gracious, and free. And the reason that he does so, that he decides to save it all, is because it corresponds to his being, that he is gracious, good, and wise. Much more so, he does it because it brings him glory. And since he is good and gracious and wise, this means that his decree and his plan will be executed with the full knowledge uh, of his, the infinite knowledge of his being, the infinite wisdom of, of his being, and in a way that is good and expresses his graciousness with the end result of it really bringing him glory. That's the end goal in all of this. And so what happens then is that his goodness, his graciousness, his wisdom are made known in accordance with his infinite goodness, infinite graciousness, and infinite wisdom. These three are working themselves out in a way that we actually learn something about God. We, it reveals to us something about who he is. Now, of course, what we also want to say, and, and maybe an important note that we might often overlook, is found in letter B, that recovery is not only a result of his graciousness, but also of his wisdom and his goodness. The emphasis there, I think, falling on goodness because we often overlook, or excuse me, emphasis falling on wisdom because we often overlook the wisdom of God in the plan of salvation. It's very nice, it's very well and very good of God to save us. It's very gracious of God to save us because he does not owe it to us. It's a gift that he freely gives out of the immensity of his being. But we don't often consider wisdom as part of this puzzle. Wisdom and knowledge in this case, are tied up together. Wisdom is the outworking of knowledge, and and it's particularly interesting. God's being is characterized by depth, by by fullness, by immensity, by variety, and by, by glory that is beyond our comprehension. At the same time, as complex as God may be, we also believe in divine simplicity. And what that means is that God is not made up of parts. 
He is free from composition. The attributes of God are not parts of who God is. They are not added to his being, but God's attributes are who God is in himself. He is his attributes, each and every one of them, each and every moment, all the time, for all history. So when we think about wisdom and knowledge in particular, he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his needs in a way that glorifies him most. And that's what we call wisdom. He's applying his holiness, his justice, his knowledge of all things, good and right and true, in ways that correspond to it, to his knowledge. Now, different from us, God does not grow. He does not increase in his knowledge. He does not learn. He does not observe things. He does not increase or develop in his understanding of things. He knows all things uh, at each and every moment, all time, and his knowledge applies to his plan of salvation. And because he is all of his attributes simultaneously, the application of this plan is made with full knowledge, in full wisdom, and it corresponds in full to his infinite graciousness. These aren't happening as indistinct parts of who God is, but each of The attributes of of God are at play as this plan of salvation comes to fruition and is decreed and unfolds. And this is important for us to say, if God were not wise and good and all-knowing, grace would not be set into a plan that is actually accomplished. Moreover, God's wisdom moves him to exercise his graciousness to redeem it all. Why? Because the objectives of God within history are are in mind. The exaltation of his name and the claiming of a people for his own possession. And his wisdom moves him to decree how he will exercise his graciousness. It's an important point to make. Recovery is not only the result of his graciousness, but also of God's wisdom that goes beyond our comprehension that he would put a plan together. Now the fact that all of these are working all of the attributes are all the time working together because God is who he is. He is his attributes. This C, this means that the plan of salvation is not hastily or carelessly thrown together and that God is not at war with himself to carry it out. Now, if you were to think about your own experience, you'd come to the conclusion that it's quite difficult oftentimes to carry out a plan that you make, whether it's good or bad. Some of you may have made New Year's resolutions last year. I wonder how many of us are still carrying out our plans. Um, We are oftentimes at war with ourselves to do the things which we set out to do. We lack the motivation. We don't feel like getting up in the morning or we lose the, the grit and the determination and the discipline to carry on doing something. Oftentimes we make plans without having the full knowledge or having the, the full wisdom that God does to accomplish our plans. But his plan, however, is good. It's wise, it's fair, it's free, it's gracious, and every aspect of God's being is moved to accomplish this and carry it out. And that's good news for us. Number two, the reason for recovery. We need to be recovered because we threw ourselves into complete destruction and misery and we cannot stand before God. We need to be recovered because we threw ourselves into complete destruction and misery and we cannot stand before God. 
letter A, we are children of wrath. First and foremost, we are children of wrath because of our own sin through our representative Adam. Now, you'll notice the language of the Belgic Confession says that we threw ourselves into this. But that's also the language of the Bible. Scripture plainly attributes Adam's sin to us as though we ourselves were with him and did it with him. Now, for many, this is a difficult concept at first to get. Um, They may protest, that's not fair, I wouldn't have done it. Um, They may protest and say they don't want somebody else to represent them in the garden. And to that, I, I think there's just one answer. Who are you to argue with God who is infinitely wise and all knowing? Do you take issue, O man, with his appointment of Adam as a representative? In his infinite wisdom, can he err in that that person which he chooses to represent all of mankind in whom uh, the fall is swept up in? Or would you rather also impugn or indict in your protest God's goodness too? Because God's goodness doesn't just apply to his plan to save. It applies in his appointment of Adam as a representative of mankind. That's good. It's better than me. It's better than what I could have planned. Letter B, as a result, we become subject to spiritual and physical death. I think a particular note here is the reality that Christianity alone can account for, at least with a rational explanation, the reality and the cause of death. Um, It can account alone for the travesty that death is to our experience, to the the stain that it is uh, upon our nature and the way that we were created to be. We were not made to die. And Christianity alone can recognize the pain of the reality of death and the way that it is an affront to our intuitive and natural longing for eternity, for more. Death is not a joke. It's serious. I think if you've ever seen someone die, you understand that very clearly. How horrible it is, how tragic it is. But worse than physical death is spiritual death. And Yes, I just said that. Worse than real death is spiritual death. You become, in the fall, dead to sin. You have no ability to do good. You have no ability to please God. You have no ability uh, to ascertain or, or to discern or to learn what the law of God is, you are completely and utterly dead, unable to do anything that is pleasing before God. You have no ability, even apart from common grace, to figure out what, what something good is, what something orderly within creation is. And nothing could really be worse, could it? If we think about the ravages of sin, if we think about what sin is, not just the way that it is a mar and a, and a, and a f- sincere offense against God, 
if we think about sin from the perspective of human experience, it's horrible. To do evil is to invite destruction and ruin on our own lives. I think of a, a lesson I learned fairly young. Um, I was watching a show with my dad, Breaking Bad, and my dad concluded, you know what this show teaches? <laughs> to live by the sword is to die by the sword. The more you steep your hands in the blood and in the guilt, the more it gets on you and the harder the stains are to get out. It invites destruction, it invites ruin, it invites anguish in our daily experience. This, this disorder, this chaos, this sin, this spiritual death was so bad in the days of Noah that there was no law in the land, there was no goodness, there was absolute spiritual death. It was running rampant across and among the land. It was so bad that God had to intervene in an extraordinary way to deal with it. This spiritual death means that we have an incomprehensible problem. We cannot do any good. We are subject to wrath. We're subject to wrath. We're subject to this experience of brokenness and of anguish as the sin unravels our lives. And there is absolutely no way that we can, apart from God in Christ, reverse the legal verdict that awaits us. We have no ability to please God we have no ability to undo the, the consequences of our sin the more we do it. It's an incomprehensible problem. Inestimable. We can't come to terms with it. Letter C. We also become subject to a state of misery and could not stand before God. What is this state of misery? Well, it's, it's really connected to the fact that we have lost communion with God. We've robbed ourselves of our greatest good and our, our greatest enjoyment, the pleasures of God evermore. And that's connected to our dwelling in his presence. We're so filthy, we're, we're so unable to do good. Of course, speaking from the perspective that we are apart from God and Christ, that we cannot stand in his presence. Uh, the language of the Belgic was, was, was interesting. Man had to flee before God. Adam fled from God in shame, and as a result of his sin, he is excommunicated or expelled from the garden, the place of God's dwelling. In the, in the development of the covenants within the Old Testament, you have the Holy of Holies, and it is only there that the people experience, that the priest, the high priest, experiences most fully the nearness of God's presence, because the people can't come in. God's presence has to be held back from the people lest they die. Estrangement from God's presence is then this, this source of misery because of this spiritual death, and it's quite a terrible thing. It's often maybe hard for us to perceive that because we've never experienced the full unity of dwelling with God, to be with Him where He is, as He is. That's what we long for in the new creation. But I think if COVID taught us anything, it was just how important embodied experiences with our friends, with our family, and with one another. Not just in worship, but in our daily experience of life. 
the whole experience thus of life because of this, this guilt and because of this misery, because of this spiritual and physical death, this whole experience of life is mired, it's clouded in a sense of inability, in a sense of darkness, and in a sense of estrangement. Inability because we can't do what's good. Darkness because we're alienated from the light of God's, of God's face, the light of His presence. No one has ever seen God except the Son. And estrangement, we're far from Him. We want to reach out, as it were, and touch His robe. It's depressing, it's sad, it's hard to define what, we, what we're missing. C.S. Lewis says, I think accurately, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, that long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that's true, apart from Christ. I mean, it's one thing after another. And even if man on his own, which he isn't because he's spiritually dead, was so inclined to seek after God, he would not be satisfied with him because he would be given to sin. And sin does not delight, darkness does not delight in the light. Number three, the conquest to recover. The plan of God, the, the plan God set forth to save man and bless him is through a great battle where his son would strike down the beast. I love that language, and I think it's appropriate. Letter A. In particular, the way that God does, accomplishes his plan, letter A, the plan of God was that he would save through Jesus Christ. God would save through Jesus Christ. I, uh, I love this scene in, in John. John in particular shows the, the way that God would save through Jesus Christ through a number of the statements, but I think this scene in particular is, is telling, and so we'll read it. This is from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, no, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come back from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is a, a one of, another one of those classic statements in John where we see that the Son is sent on a mission in verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and then go to the Father in verse 1. And then in 3, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands so that he had come back from God and was going back to God. Throughout John, you have other statements where he says that he has come to do the will of the Father he has come to save all those that the Father had given to him, those that the Father had given out of his, out, uh, to him out of this world, of all of them, not, he, he would not lose one of them. He is very clearly sent from God to accomplish something, and it is depicted so beautifully for us here in this scene in John. Just before Jesus is to go to the cross, he gets down and he washes his people clean. 
God saves. He washes his people clean through the Son, Jesus Christ. Of course, that is another callback. All of these testaments in John to this mission that he's on is a callback to that covenant of redemption. We talked about it last time in Article 16. That oath, that pact, that agreement, that contract, that covenant that God made uh, the, the three persons of the God of the God had made with one another before the foundations of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son taking an oath to do the will of the Father, which was by His sacrificial death, by His blameless life, His glorious resurrection and ascension, to redeem and to recover all those that the Father had given him out of the world. Now B, this salvation was accomplished in a cosmic battle where the humble son became lowly. This is such an awesome scene. This is such an awesome scene. The, uh, the, the dramatic irony here in, this, in these first couple verses of John 13 is dripping. Jesus is seated at this table. Judas Iscariot is sitting at this table. Jesus, knowing that the devil, Satan, had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, is now going to do something that prefigures what his sacrificial death, the blood spilt on the, on the cross, would accomplish. Washing his people clean. It's this subtle, ironic, almost ridiculous scene. How is Jesus, the Son of God, going to outdo the devil in this great and cosmic battle where the forces of good and evil are present at a dinner table? He is going to transform in the blink of an eye to the form of a slave. Wearing the clothing of a slave that symbolized really what they would refer to as Gentile dogs. This is a cosmic scene. It's an epic battle. Of course, Genesis 3.15 is key here. All the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, what is the promise? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Here it is coming to fulfillment. In John 13, it reaches its climax on that cross when the humble servant was given over to death when he was shattered and his blood shed. It was there on that cross that the dragon was slayed. We have an incomprehensible problem, but we have an even more incomprehensible solution. A humble servant who will wash his people clean by his own blood and apply to them his righteousness. See, the purpose of this plan was that man would be blessed by the immeasurable riches of his grace, God's grace. Of course, we see this language in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7. Paul, speaking of the great love with which he has loved us, says that in the coming ages, God might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable means it cannot be calculated. 
It cannot be estimated. We can't figure out just how much it means. And there's language all over Scripture that, that, that reveals to us just what it is that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's, it's made so plain. It, it, you know, the beauty of it is oftentimes exposed in the light of our former destiny before we were made alive together with Christ. Colossians 1.21, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I mean, this is his end goal for you. Those alienated, those estranged from his presence, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, that you might stand before him as blameless and ultimately one day, not just spiritually in terms of your legal verdict before him, but physically in glorified bodies. You can't measure that. He does not owe us this gift, but he freely gives it anyways. Children of wrath, Paul calls us. Um, you know, sometimes we're not even... We, we, we're, we're, so, we, we're so far from estimating this and we sense that and it becomes real to us how amazing this gift is and how lowly we esteem it in comparison to what would await us. Um, do, you, do you know how much he loves you? Look at John 13, just verse 1. He knows that his hour to, to, uh, had come to depart out of this world He's about to sweat tears in that garden, or sweat blood in that garden of Gethsemane. What does John say? Having loved his own, you, who were formerly children of wrath, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this end doesn't just mean, as, as we know, the full story of Jesus and everything that happens in the crucifixion. It doesn't just mean to the end of his own life. It means to the, to the fullest extent that love can be given, which for the Son of God is infinite. To the fullest extent that love can be given, Christ loved us. That's the immeasurable riches of His grace. And perhaps sometimes you are dissatisfied with your estimation of that or just how much you love him. I saw this little thing this week from Charles Spurgeon. And he says, oh, some of you are dissatisfied with how much you love the Lord. And he almost, he almost responds to this saying, like, cut it out. Stop looking at yourself. You want to love Jesus more? You want to know what the secret is? Look at how much he loves you. And then you might just come to understand how much you love him. His grace, his, the riches of his grace is immeasurable. We can surely find it by looking to the love of Jesus because he loved us to the end. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks for the plan of salvation, that you have not left us to ourselves, 
but that you have called us out of the world that we would no longer be children of wrath, but children of life and light, children of the living God. For this we give you thanks. For this we give you praise. And we ask that it would not fall short, that reality, that we would not under, under-evaluate it as, as humans in this coming year, but that it would impress itself on our, on our hearts and on our minds that we might cling to Christ and to his love for us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.